Welcome to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond. My areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. With me, as always, is my co-host, good friend, and expert on the golf swing and golf in general and just being tall. That is my friend, Chase Cooper. Chase, how are you today? I'm, a, I'm very good. and I'm an expert on being tall and I'm an expert on cram flights and chairs mm-hmm. and, and doorways and all that kind of stuff. I didn't know, I, I've never known any different and I'm, I am an expert on being 6'7 and the world's not built for 6'7. I remember the first time I traveled with a basketball team, which by the way, a women's team where I would say the average height was probably 6'4 to 6'6 six, six. and the how much it was an eye-opening experience how much more difficult it was for them to travel on an airplane in every single way that goes it's probably as difficult as it is for them as it is for me to play basketball when they are towering over me so uh it is a there are certain settings where being tall is crazy advantageous like if you're trying to hit a golf ball 300 yards in the air and also there are certain settings where it is not so advantageous like the tin cans that we call airplanes that fly us around that's exactly right. It was kind of funny. The last airplane I was on, we were, I said, I was, it was a late flight. I, I booked it very late and I was a, I was a Southwest C, C number or C letter. And I uh, got on the airplane set between two people and it was, we were kind of having the, the jockeying for position. I was all crammed yeah. in here. Luckily it was an only an hour flight, but it was, uh, yeah, I was kind of working. In Did you trying, see the uh, total discontentment on their faces when they saw that you were sitting next to them? Like <sighs> when you're on a flight and they're like, here comes, uh, Luke Long being over here. <laughs> Luckily, hey, hey, that's Luke Long, Luke Longley. That's all Chicago Bulls. That's, yeah. that's your next Luke one. Longley uh, is also. We used to call him Luke Long Bean because he was just a string bean, yeah. like it's a combo. Yeah. But Luke also went like me. Went to the University of New Mexico. He played basketball there a little yeah. bit before my time there. But yeah, yeah. we have we yeah. have a couple different connections. But yeah, he was uh, he was one of the the most successful basketball players in the uh, New Mexico era which I used to have That's and their, cool. their was, basketball team's getting better, but he was very skilled. I mean, obviously he played, played for years with the bulls and had plenty of success with Jordan and all that stuff. But he was very skilled, big old, big old tall white dude. And he was European, right? Was he from, I think he's Mark? Australian if I remember okay. correctly. Okay. Yeah. I remember he was overseas. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about a couple of quick little topics today. One of my favorite ones is goal setting and the importance or lack thereof of the importance of goal setting and what the science says. Um, I was always told growing up that we had to have goals we had to have short-term goals we had to had had to have long-term goals and after talking to you and talking to some other really smart people that's starting to show that they may not be as important as we once thought so mm-hmm. doc what say you on the importance of goal setting it's a mixed bag with with a lot of nuance in it um i will just say this goals are important for us as humans i'm not anti-goals and any Buddy who's a um, proficient psychology professional, I would say, understands this. It's a psycho-emotional need for us as human beings, meaning something we need to feel, feel fulfilled, to have purpose, to be engaged and motivated in the world, to have meaningful pursuits. And that might be another way of saying goals, even outcome goals, so to speak. Um, and so having goals is, is not a bad thing. It really isn't. What's really most important and where it gets nuanced is our relationship with them. Um, for example, there's kind of, you might think of like our relationship with goals as like, how strong is my grip on them? 
and we know that we it's kind of like a golf grip. We need a grip on them. We need to have some clarity and some goals that are meaningful for us. So what I would say first, is goal setting important? Yes. Like clarifying your goals would be one. Number two, clarifying like why they are meaningful to you and why they're authentic to you. So one of the things our research shows us repeatedly is us having goals that are not authentic and meaningful to us do not motivate us. And we get dragged around in a way because we're really, we're really not pursuing them. You know, I'll give a tangible example. A client that I had a couple of years ago, she came to me because she was experiencing the yips. She was a tremendous golfer. I mean, tons of amateur success. She was experiencing the yips. And the more we talked about it, I was like, I don't think this is about making or missing putts. And what it came down to was like, I asked her like, what is your goal? And she's like, well, I want to play on the LPGA tour. But the way she said it, I was like, ah, are you sure? And what it came down to was like everyone in her life had noticed how good she was for a really long time and telling her you should play on the PJ on the LPJ tour. You got to be this such and such. Her parents, thankfully, were giving her leeway to figure out what was best for her. But every single coach, every college coach, every media member, et cetera, was telling her, you got to do this. You got to win majors. You got to do all these things. Right. When I pressed her on it a little bit more and gave her some space to perhaps that not need to be her goal, which really came out she was like i don't want to play pro golf i like playing golf i don't want to play pro golf like that lifestyle is not for me which for anyone who's played pro golf you know the lifestyle is far less glamorous than it looks on tv you are traveling constantly it's very expensive you're often sleeping in less than hospitable arrangements it's you're playing rounds on somebody else's time scale it's hot it's cold it's raining it's a, a meat grinder of a profession for most people and, I mean, and it's very to, it's very it's very taxing on the body people forget it's that really right? hard it's very hard really hard and by the way i would say way harder on your body and everything about it than college like college golf even with the top programs not nearly as taxing as playing pro golf and by the way your livelihood is at stake that's a real consequence of playing pro golf and when, when I gave her the space to perhaps consider what she really wants or what her goals really are, playing at the highest levels of golf and playing pro golf was not really them. And the reason she was experiencing the yips is because she wasn't afraid of missing putts. Every putt she made moved her closer to something that she didn't really want to do and kept the cycle going of people telling her how good she was and how she can't wait to get on the LPJ Tour and you're going to win so many majors and stuff. And so... Being playing successful golf and playing freely, which she was good enough that when she did, all signs pointed to a career on the LPGA Tour was a very threatening experience for her. And so one of the things with our goals is making sure that we are um, authentic and honest with ourselves about what it is that we're really after. Now, for many people, this is I want to lower my handicap. I want to shoot lower scores, whether it's a certain number or I want to win my club championship, etc. But that's just an example of what happens when we don't set goals and clarify our goals that are authentic to us, they're not meaningful pursuits, in which case our psycho-emotional needs working for them are not going to be met. And it's going to become an aversive, something that we often see as a lack of motivation. Like really what happens is it becomes an obligation. And we know for sure through decades of research that there's a big difference in what we experience, how motivated we are and how engaged we are and how much we enjoy something and how much we learn in it when it's an obligation versus when it's something that's freely chosen and uh, a meaningful pursuit for us. 
So, so obviously, her goal was an was an obligation. It her wasn't... goal became an her goal was no. She was engaged with an obligation that wasn't really her goal. Okay. Her goal was to play golf, not to not... do it out of obligation in a lifestyle that didn't suit what she wanted to do. She didn't want to travel all the time. She didn't want to have to play golf for money. That was not something that she wanted, right? And it wasn't that she was scared of it. She just didn't have any interest in it. And so because it was a goal that was assigned to her, it became an obligation rather than an outcome or perhaps an experience that was authentic to her and aligned with what she really wanted, right? So just because you're really good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. And she kind of fell into that trap, which as a young person who's really good at something, there's going to be a ton of people around you to tell you how great you are and what you should or shouldn't do with it that aren't the people who actually have to live with that lifestyle or those experiences and those consequences, right? So, you know, if your goal is to just go play golf and just have a good time with your friends, perhaps have a few cocktails or do whatever, and that's what's really meaningful for you and authentic as your golf experience, trying to be a scratch golfer, going to be a, a very obligation-oriented experience. On the other hand, if what you really want to do is get good and see how good you can be, and but you're kind of pretending like, no, I don't really care, and I just want to have fun and do whatever. Uh, and by have fun, I mean like you're playing casually. You're not really caring about what score you shoot. Both of those things are going to be incongruent, meaning there's a, there's a detachment from what I really want to do and what I really what I say I do. And in that space, again, it becomes an obligation or in a non-purposeful pursuit. And for us as human beings, we're just not very engaged with those types of things in the same way. Right. Uh, can it, can it still be an obligation, even if it's a fear-based pursuit? Meaning like I got a high school kid that's a junior in high school that he's having a hard time accepting that he would may not be good enough to play college golf. His goal is to play college golf. Would you consider that an obligation or is the obligation more when it's somebody else's goal that's being kind of thrown upon you? The worst an obligation is that it's assigned to us without us having a choice in the matter. So if his okay. goal is to play college golf, the fear he's experiencing is that when we pursue, this is again the nuance of our goals, which we'll get yeah. into here when we talk about like when our death grip around them gets too tight, is that anytime we have a really meaningful pursuit for us as humans, and I'm talking about the ones that kind of make the air on the neck, on the back of your neck stand up, and the things that we go, yo, authentically, this is what I legit really want particularly if you're trying to thrive at something and really get good at it and perhaps compete at a higher level, there's always a risk that it might not work out, that our best efforts aren't enough. And since this is golf beneath the surface, I'll dive just a little bit into our human psychology. One of the existential questions for us as human beings that keeps us from pursuing the things we really want in our life, better golf, better relationships, the careers that we really want, the the connections with people and the experiences we want, whether that's traveling, et cetera. Oftentimes, one of the primary barriers for us is we are not willing to accept the fact that our best efforts and our authentic selves may not be enough. You know, if we're really getting into it a little bit here, if you're trying to play pro golf, regardless of how skilled you are, there is always some chance your best efforts may not be enough for a variety of different reasons. If you love somebody or you're in a friendship or a romantic relationship and you are yourself, there is always a chance that that might not be enough for somebody else. You could really want to be pursue this in your life and there's always a chance things might not go that way. And if we're not willing to accept that risk, then the obligation becomes trying to avoid that risk or to 
avoid those outcomes, in which case then it starts to bleed into our experience and we're no longer pursuing what's meaningful to us. We're trying to avoid what we find threatening and uh, perhaps personally offensive to us. Right. So we get defense. We get defensive rather than pursuing what it is that we want. And that's, again, a little deeper level into our psychology. But if we're really honest about the things that we really want in our life, there's risk involved. There's social risk. There's personal risk. There's oftentimes financial risk. There's competitive risk. Sometimes there's physical risk, depending on what it is that you're what you're after. And the bottom lines is if we really want to thrive and pursue the things that are most meaningful to us, we have to square up with those risks sometimes. Yeah, and that very- means it's another way of saying we have to accept that risk. Yeah. And that is not, and I don't say that flippantly as if that's easy because oftentimes it yeah. is not. Right. But there's very few things that, that people looking back at their lives that they had success with or, or you know, experiences that they that they remember that, that they enjoyed didn't have some some risk to it. So yeah. you know, being risk averse is it's not healthy. Yeah, you are. Well, to a degree, like there's such thing as yeah. we'll, we'll use being this term later as we're talking about goals. Yeah, we're talking risk. about calculated risks, but yeah. you're touching on there's a significant body of research, Chase, about people. Who are on who interview people on their deathbeds and people who are about to die and know they're about to die have a very unique perspective that we typically don't get to in our lives very often and the number one regret from people is i wish i had taken more risk meaning i wish i had gone for the thing that i really wanted instead of letting fear drive the experience not just be part of the experience but drive the experience or Um, not taking the risk necessary to go and settling for something less, right? Because again, what happens is you get to the end of your life and you go, well, what I was really after wasn't that. And so I had a, my life has this level of inauthenticity to it that I settled for less or I didn't go for what I really wanted because I was scared it wasn't going to work out. Conversely, when you ask people at the end of their lives, hey, what was something you went after that that you really went for and you didn't get? Almost always they say that there's some level of dis, um, they're disheartened about it. There's some level of pain with it, but there's not the same type of regret because there's pain plus regret when we don't let ourselves pursue the things that we want or we help hold ourselves back or we let things tell us, oh, I probably shouldn't do that, right? Instead of me pursuing, we might say the meaningful outcomes, meaningful pursuits, goals, I, I was too scared and I didn't really give it a chance. Or when I was in competition, I never played freely enough to actually find out are my best efforts enough or not. That has a certain level of pain to it because there's failure involved and pay, failure can be painful to us. There's also a deep level of regret, which is why the number one regret for people when they die is not I tried and failed. It's I didn't try. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, so, we're too, too afraid of failure. Um, so, is there any, you know, short, we always talk about short-term and long-term goals. Is there any research behind the time with the goals? So let's let's stick to golf. If one of the things I tell my players when they when I say, okay, give me give me a short-term goal. Uh, I want to win the next this big tournament coming up in a couple in a month. I'm like, okay. So what I'll tell them is I'm like, take the goal, package it up, and throw it down the range, 300 yards down the range. Okay, what are the steps needed? to give yourself the best chance to, to, to reach that goal. And like, I'll use the analogy, like, okay, you're going to, you're about to drive home after this lesson, you're going to drive home. The goal is to not, not get in a wreck. 
the goal is to get home safely, but you're not going to think about that goal the whole time. You're going to think about the process, keeping it in yeah. between the lines, staying present, not worrying about road rage, not worrying about all that, all that nonsense, right? So the same thing applies to the golf tournament. When you hit the ball off the first tee, the I don't. My goal is not to win the golf tournament. In a perfect world, my goal is to be on time and present and focused on what I'm trying to do for each particular shot. So um, that would be a short-term goal. Is there, again, back to the research on your side? Is there anything from, um, is there any time constraint on the goals that that matters or that you guys have found relevant in the research? Yeah, um, we know there's there's it's it's a little bit mixed. One thing we know for sure is that it's important for us to have like really big pipe dreams. Like what are the, and that pipe dream might be, I'm trying to go from a 15 handicap to a 10 handicap, or I want to win my club championship. It might be just get better. So would you say like t Tiger's goal of Jack pursuing Jack was a pipe dream? Big old pipe dream of like, what is possible way down there? And just like essentially kind of thinking about like, what's at the top of the mountain type of dream. Like, Something that we get excited about that isn't necessarily available to us in the short term, but is this big, meaningful pursuit. And by the way, that can be outcome oriented. It can also be values oriented. You know, like you and I both have careers where outcomes aren't really ours. They're somebody else's. Okay? So what's really the goal or driving our motivation for things is like, can I provide value to other people? Like the larger images. How many people can we provide an impact to that helps them move toward the things that are meaningful pursuits for them, right? So that's just a big old huge image of what is perhaps possible or what is it that you could possibly move toward that would be meaningful toward you. So we know that when people have a, a vision for what they want to do, perhaps how they want to do it and have clarified that, that it starts to reel itself back to shorter term benchmarks perhaps, the downside is oftentimes we tr we create these benchmarks that we treat too rigidly. For example, players will tell me, oh, I haven't won a golf tournament, so how am I supposed to ever win a golf tournament? You know, and, and many players get to the PGA and LPGA tours having never won a competitive golf tournament at the collegiate or professional level, right? Or maybe even in high school, depending on their development, right? So we do have these short-term things, but we do know for a fact a long-term vision of your perhaps your career, yourself, your your meaningful pursuit is really important. It provides us some direction. Where it gets a little sticky with the short-term stuff is that if you think about direction like a compass, north, south, east, west, we don't want to get too rigid with the roads to get there, right? There's a big difference between I'm going from New York to LA and I must take this roadway versus I'm driving from east to west. Let's see how I get there, right? One of them provides a significant amount of freedom. You could take some detours. You can take some delays. There might be road closures or construction that you've got to work around, which is typically how life and growth works for us versus the I have to stay on I-40 the entire way, which may or may not happen. And so what we're kind of getting into, Chase, here is we know for sure with goal setting when our chokehold on them, meaning our attentional and our emotional attachment to them gets too tight and we can't let go of them enough to actually be present and engaged with the effort or the skill execution that is available to us right now, there's three primary byproducts that we see. The first is we people have a really hard time being present. 
Because again, if I have this emotional and attentional chokehold on my goals, even if they are meaningful, positive outcomes, I've always got one foot in the future and one in the present. And now I'm just multitasking. So we want goals to help create meaningful pursuits for us. But if I can't detach from the future outcomes or the future enough to actually be present in that pursuit, I'm essentially distracting myself. And it's much more difficult for us to be focused. This is why when you ask players, tell me about the time you played your best. Oftentimes they're like, I didn't even know what I was scoring. Like I had no idea how I was in relation to the actual ending outcome. And it's because they're just immersed in it, right? They're very present. Of course, their outcome goal of what they're trying to do is shoot the lowest score possible. That was the goal at the beginning of the round. And every player that I've ever worked with, the outcome they want from a tournament is to win obviously. But then if they can go, obviously that's the outcome and detach from it emotionally and attentionally, that grants them more access to go, well, what do I need to do right now? And when we make that a habit, we can use goals as a frame of reference without them being disruptive and we can be present more often. So again, this chokehold on our goals draws us off time. The second thing with this chokehold on goals that we see from people is that their effort is very inconsistent, meaning sometimes it's really good, sometimes it's not enough, and oftentimes it's an over effort toward things. And the reason is, is when we have this death grip on our goals, again, that's kind of like us going, it has to go a certain way. There cannot be any deviation from this path. And then as soon as life and the game of golf spits us some deviation, which it will, it's easy for us to give up, to throw our hands up. Like, I don't think it's going to happen today. Because when we have goals in one way or another, we are always doing this cost-benefit analysis, this kind of return on investment thing. Like, how close am I moving closer or am I moving farther away? And if I have a death grip on my goal and a very rigid path that I must follow and it cannot deviate from that, once I deviate from it, it's easy for me to start over trying to try to get back on track. Or when I realize that's not going to work out to just, well, I throw my hands up and I give up on it altogether, or at least for a short period of time. And so we see with people that are more goal-oriented, and by goal-oriented, I mean they cannot get off of them emotionally or attentionally, their effort is wildly inconsistent. And surprise, surprise, it's really difficult to perform consistently when your effort level is fluctuating wildly or doesn't match the task that you are actually engaged in, right? And then the last thing we see with people who are have this death grip on their goals, again, they're clear and meaningful pursuits, but they cannot detach from them when it's time to compete or train, is that they have, they're unwilling to take calculated risks, which is just another way of saying unstable confidence. So what happens is they tend to be defensive of their goals as they're going, so they play safe and scared. Which we talked about before, which has a certain layer of regret for us as human beings, especially after we finish doing what we're doing, because we go, well, what's the point of me doing this thing if I'm not going to do it in a way that actually might give it a chance to be successful? And the other part of that is once they realize the thing isn't going to happen for them, they start to get reckless. And so we see with people who have this death grip on goals, they are far more likely to do like unethical stuff like cheating. They are far more likely to like burn bridges with people because they get really defensive about their goals and expectations, et cetera. And they tend to take it out on the people around them. And they are far more likely to experience physical and emotional injury as a result of their pursuit. 
because again, if I'm getting reckless with my training or my effort is wild, like I'm very likely to overtrain. I'm very likely to do things that try to aren't necessarily healthy for me. Like I'll compromise my physical health for my performance in a way that you stack those up enough times, it's going to come back and bite you at some point. And so again, it's a nuanced thing for us as human beings to have meaningful pursuits that we're really clear about. But the more rigid we get with them and the more of a chokehold we have on them, the more we start to get in our own way as we're trying to pursue them. And in, again, as a frame of reference, not that we need to be in flow state to perform well, but it's a pretty good frame of reference as the optimal state of human functioning. It is a state of immersion in the task at hand with and it's an intrinsic motivation without goal striving. So flow state, our most powerful state as a human being, is intrinsic motivation, meaning I'm motivated to do the thing for the sake of the thing, and outcomes are a bonus, not I'm doing this in order to reach some type of an outcome. Which again, we are all somewhat outcome-oriented, but when we're in flow state, oftentimes it's because we have learned to let go of the outcome. And it doesn't become the primary motivator. And the thing itself becomes the primary motivator, which is why we see people who, and this is really important for people who want to play at the highest levels of golf. The people with the highest level of extrinsic motivation, which is in some ways a proxy or something we would say is closely related to a death grip on your goals, this high extrinsic motivation, the more of a death grip they have, the more likely they are to have shorter, less successful, and less fulfilling careers because everything is in relation to this outcome, in which case then I'm never really present with the thing that I'm doing. And I'm far more likely to do that in a way that is in ways that are free enough to, for us to have a chance to be successful. And then what we're hoping is that the goal keeps us motivated, but because it's in the future and a distant thing, we're missing the motivation available to us in the thing itself while it's actually happening. And people who have longer, healthier, happier, and more successful careers and more fulfilling careers, they're not just motivated by outcomes. They are more uh, motivated by the thing itself than they are the outcome. So there's um, the nuance, I guess I'm finally getting to here, is when we are disproportionately motivated, that's our death grip, on outcomes by the goals, the thing itself becomes less enjoyable. And when the thing itself becomes less enjoyable, we, it's very difficult for us to make pr uh, progress toward our meaningful pursuits, in which case then we're hoping the goal can keep us motivated. But extrinsic motivation doesn't have the staying power that an intrinsic motivation does. We are all both intrinsically and extrinsically motivated, but when it is disproportionately extrinsically motivated, it will wear out and it's only a matter of time. One thing that you said that, that I wrote down was that you'll see some, some people take some crazy risks when they get close to the end and they, they, they see their, their goal slipping from They get grass. reckless. Yeah. yeah. And like, I see, I've seen a few kids down in the Houston area that have, have either been labeled a cheater or have been caught cheating. And a lot of times they're good players and they'll have very difficult parents, very overbearing parents. And that's where you see that. I guess that extrinsic pressure being applied that, that, uh, is that, did I word that correctly? Would you say that's correct? Perhaps, you know, in that situation, again, I don't want to guess at anyone, but it's not, it doesn't take a psychologist to observe that there are some really overbearing parents in youth sport, right? And if those parents are creating 
an obligation for outcomes as a measure of success that is super rigid, let's not be surprised when that kid faces some adversity and some challenges where those outcomes may not be possible or their their internal calculus is telling them, I don't think I'm going to be able to get to this without, and then fill in over blank, let's not be surprised when they turn to something like perhaps cheating or taking shortcuts or doing the types of things that we as adults wag our finger at kids for when we actually set the stage for them to do that in the first place based on the fact that we're going, this is the outcome. You must pursue it and you must do it in this way that that rigid death grip on the outcomes, those are the types of, um, again, we become risk averse until the point where we get reckless with it. It's so interesting because the research is showing that the pipe dream is important, but yes. then but not to um, become so death grip and rigid that we don't stay present. We don't stay, we don't, we don't uh, have our, our acceptance isn't high enough. And then we're not locked into the process and the steps needed to get to that goal or give ourselves the best chance to get to that goal. Yeah. So on an anecdotal, just human language experience, it's super important for us to have things that are really important to us that are beyond where we are currently. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when do they when, do they need to be real? Do they need to be realistic? Like the who, pipe dream does. Who's to say what's realistic, Chase? Like if you're a 17 year old and like I want to be the best player in the world, like who am I to tell you that that's realistic or not? Like we never really know what's realistic because the future is always uncertain, and we never know when people are going to develop, how they're going to develop, etc. So, you know, quite frankly, I think it's and we're getting into a little bit of my personal opinion here, so I will clarify that to begin with. Too often we as humans, when people tell us things that they really want, we are often our response is, ooh, I don't know, in one way or another. Like, uh, I don't know, because we have experienced failure and rejection, whatever, in the past, and we're either trying to save them from it or the disappointment or whatever, instead of going, that's what you want? Right on, tell me more about that, right? Like, why does that excite you? Why is that meaningful to you? And we as parents, really, if you're a parent, really need to pay attention to when our kids do that type of stuff because we squash out a lot of people's dreams and whatever we might want to call them before they've even started because we're trying to save them from pain. And what we're really teeing them up for is pain and heartbreak later right. on. Um, or regret that they didn't pursue it. And regret, pain and heartbreak is basically a combination of pain and regret, right? And so, yes, having big things that who cares how realistic they are in the future? And I would say from a, both a personal and professional standpoint, if it's an authentic, meaningful pursuit to you, who cares how realistic it is? Because the bottom line is if you're trying to always go what's realistic, we never know what it is. And typically what we do is we err on the side of settling for less. Right. However, we also know that if we can't get off of that to engage with the thing day in and day out in a way that is interesting that allows us to explore it with curiosity and I would say a freedom to make mistakes, to screw up sometimes with the freedom to try and fail along the way, it becomes too rigid a pursuit. There's not enough error for us to learn, to get better, and it doesn't become a very enjoyable experience for us. And I didn't say easy. I didn't say comfortable. I didn't say certain. I said not very enjoyable. And we know from people who move their potential upward Things are not easy. They're not comfortable and they're not certain, but they find the work, the engagement with the thing very enjoyable, but they have to be present to do that. And when we can't get off of these future goals to be able to focus on the thing itself, 
we can't be present enough to actually enjoy it on a neurological level. What that means is our dopaminergic system pairs to what we are focused on, right? Dopamine is the neuromodulator in our brain. It's the neurochemical of pursuit. It makes challenge enjoyable. This is why, you know, some people where it's like, Hey, we got some really hard work and they're kind of like, all right, yeah, 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 let's get into that, right? It makes things that are challenging and meaningful to us more enjoyable. We want to do them because of the thing itself, not just an outcome. The more we are focused on future outcomes when it's time to be engaged with the thing, the less enjoyable it becomes because we're distracted during it. And so our dopaminergic system doesn't pair to it. So people have asked me a lot of times, well, how do I make this more enjoyable? The neurochemical answer is remove all other things that are providing enjoyment to that. So again, it's very important for us to clarify what do you want? What goals do you have? What's a meaningful pursuit for you? If the meaningful pursuit is want to play with my friends, have some brews, have some music going the whole time, that's what enjoyable golf is for me, right on. If what you really want is to see how good you can be at something and maybe try to be the best at it, the more other things you start to add to it that start to layer the experience, you're not really engaged with the thing. You're engaged with the thing plus. So it's not that I love golf. I love golf with a car, with music, with friends, with alcohol, with a cigar, etc. In the same way that if you wanted to make working out itself more enjoyable, you would actually start to remove things like music, caffeine, all that type of stuff that starts to make the thing less uh, present in it. And so, and that's a challenge for us because you're removing pleasure so that your dopaminergic system will eventually repair to this or repair, meaning pair like a Bluetooth system to it, not repair like damage. Um, all that being said, how this relates to goals is when we are too beholden to them, our focus and our enjoyment does not pair to the thing itself. And then we are being motivated by an external thing. It's like trying to be motivated by a firecracker instead of a bonfire. Bonfire burns deep and hot. Firecrackers are awesome, but they're they're not super hot and they're very fast and flashy and they can't keep they can't you can't heat your food and you can't light your house with fireworks. Otherwise you gotta just create more and more and more and more and more. And that rat race burns us out. Versus if we go, what I want is this and I'm gonna stoke a real fire with the thing itself it starts to become something that motivates us to do it for the sake of doing it, which moves us a lot toward the things we want. Okay. So in golf and in, in our, in your profession, in my profession, right. In, in our, our areas of expertise, we've got a player that uh, his goal, this is, this is all hypothetical, um, but we've got a player that is um, let's say we're both, he, you're working with him. I'm, I'm working with him on a swing. You're working with him in the league. His goal is to keep his card. PJ Tour, Corn Ferry Tour. Like one of the more difficult goals to stay on time, accepting to stay locked into the process. Um, one thing I wrote down was good goals versus bad goals. Um, to me, that that goal is tough because there is a there's a time frame, there is a lot of outside factors and a lot of a lot of influence that's going to be applied to that goal that's going to make it really hard for him to stay locked into what he's trying to yeah. do yeah. am i right anytime you are competing in the golf world where your livelihood is at stake it's it's a 
it's a difficult motivational circumstance because you're going to be motivated in some ways by avoidance too. Like there's a big difference. You see players play a lot more freely oftentimes when they win a tournament because now they have a buffer window for having a job. There's a lot of that comes, a lot of freedom that comes from winning a golf tournament, which is why players, not just because they win one, but because of what comes with it, why they're so excited when they do. Even players that have won tournaments before, but perhaps it, it unlocks a lot for you, Lock, unlocks a lot of freedom. The vast majority of players on both the LPGA and the PGA Tour are playing for their card every year among trying to win other tournaments. So what I would say for sure, working with a player in that capacity is that you cannot, you have to acknowledge that that is the actual situation that you are facing, that the risk that you are facing is perhaps losing your job. Yeah. And then what would be important there is obviously the goal is to keep your card the goal is to go try to win a tournament, make a ton of money, keep your card. I said like all that, of course, are desired outcomes. And with that comes the risk of some undesired outcomes. If you're willing to accept that risk and by risk, it means I don't like it doesn't mean I was going to like it. Doesn't mean I'm satisfied by it. Doesn't mean I don't care. Doesn't mean I'm certain or comfortable about it. It means I'm willing to live with all of that. Then you can use your goal as an orienter rather than something that is driving the experience while you're actually in it. And by that, I mean, it doesn't become a distraction while you're actually playing. But do you, do you almost try? I mean, I, I get, so said player has six tournaments left and they're right on the cusp. They're top 150, whatever the, whatever the exact number is. Um, do you still have to kind of, I wouldn't say distract, but like you've got to take that goal. The goal is to keep your, keep your job. But in order to do that, in order to give yourself the best chance to succeed, do you preach process to those players? Do you preach like, hey, it's and then at times we're changing our strategy. We may go for broke a little bit more depending on where we're at. I mean, it can't just be just make the cut, and make money. You know, as as you talked about in a couple episodes ago, how important it is a top ten, one top tens, and five missed cuts is is way better than you know five or six top top forties. You know, so. Um, is it, does it become back to stable confidence being on time and accepting and, and letting it rip uh, every shot? Are we, are we going down to the, that, you know, micro level? Yeah. So stable confidence is going to be required in that type of a pursuit, which is, can I create space for myself in the present moment? And can I be accepting of the future, all possibilities? Because if you're not willing to accept the possibility that you're going to lose your tour card, you will be trying to avoid losing your tour card instead of pursuing keeping it. That's a huge difference. And every player who's been in this situation has felt what it's like to be in that. So if this is the situation and we know that that's where the psychological framework we need to bring to it to give us the best chance of success, I wouldn't tell any player what it is they should or shouldn't do, particularly strategically or whatever. But I would ask them a series of questions to clarify that and to understand why it's important. Essentially, you know, if I'm, we'll be talking about uh, methodologies that we use out of um, what we call motivational interviewing, which is essentially you're putting the course of action in the hands of the client, but in a guided way. So that would be me asking them like, what do you want? Why is it important to you? Which on the surface seems very obvious, but if you ask people about it and you let them get into it for a little bit, it becomes really tangible and really something felt. Then I would ask them some questions along the lines of like, what are the best strategies for you to be able to do this? What kind of barriers are we expecting? One of the barriers is I know that outcome is out there and it can go one of two ways that has a significant r ripple on my life. I'm going to think about that at times. And 
Yes, of course you are. Right. And there are going to be times where I feel like I don't know if it's going to happen or perhaps maybe I, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. And those can both be equally distracting, by the way. So asking them, well, what are some strategies? What are some courses of action and some barriers that we need to pay attention to? Then really getting to the point where it's like, hey, when rubber hits the road, why would those types of strategies be important to you? What makes them important? Right. So essentially you're giving the person freedom to talk themselves toward what it is that they want to do and how they want to do it and why it's important to them in a way that is deeper than please dear god just keep my tour card and then you give them the freedom to to do it and of course there might be some mental skills that we talk about doing that perhaps a grounding technique that we might implement that's where my job of teaching people what they can do in those situations comes in but if you haven't clarified in a um a really humanistic level that type of situation with people. It becomes something that we're not really willing to sit in our growth zone. That's There's a discomfort and agitation there, and we'll tend to dump uh, back into our comfort zone if we haven't really clarified that experience in, in that type of a way. And it's it's deep. You know, I, I, I wonder too, like, if we, this is why I asked you about realistic goals. Um, you know, I've, I've heard maybe you say last year, I've heard a couple of a couple of sports psychologists talk about goals in that if we set goals that are, you know, a little unrealistic and we get close, close, or we realize they're not attainable, that our, again, our effort becomes inconsistent, kind of the, kind of the chokehold three things that you talked about. And so, you know, that, that was interesting that you talked about pipe dream because I, you know, as kids, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to limit our, you know, I've got three kiddos. I don't want to limit their, their dreams. Um, but at the same time, I'm 38, and if I, I'm a 38, you know, six, seven dad bod, you know, white guy that's not a, not very athletic, um, the the goal of me playing in in the NBA next year is not realistic at all, and the, the even the, the pursuit of it makes no sense. And so, it's it's interesting to hear you say how important the pipe dream is, but then as we get as we get a little bit older and a little bit into it, making sure that while goals are fine, making sure that we're not, um, you know, like you said, chokehold, we're not completely um, uh, enamored with the goal to where we can't be present in the task at hand. And yeah. it, it, it's a, it's kind of a difficult circle, really. It's it, like I said, it's a nuanced thing. It's also, it's contextual in this way. Um, again, I, I harped on a little bit earlier, but man, we squash kids' goals and dreams way too flippantly. And they, and the context, the difference between you and perhaps like a young golfer is that they have a ton of time and growth ahead of them where they could develop the capabilities to be able to pursue what they want, but they won't if we squash it early. If they decide that either they can't or it's not worth it, which instead of us encouraging people to explore what it is that's meaningful and authentic to them, because they still have that time to do it. If you told me tomorrow, Raymond, my goal is to play in the NBA, I would be like, all right, man, what's that going to require? And, and who knows how realistic it is? But the context is different. You've spent a lifetime training golf and you have a family and kids. You have already gathered a variety of other responsibilities in your life, right? But if it was something like, well, I want to change careers, that might be a lot. But if it's a career where you have some competency or you have the resources available to gather that that aren't necessarily age and athleticism dependent, who knows what how realistic that could be, right? 
So there's some context around it. But the thing with the realistic goals is oftentimes like that's just another way of saying, think about it pessimistically. Pessimistically being like, well, I don't know. Right. And then again, what that primes us for is regret. Now, I would want people to consider what is it that they're meaningfully pursuing and why, even if that's something that seems unrealistic. Then the next question is, what are the risks involved? If you want to play in the NBA tomorrow, the first risk is to your knees, dude, because you're almost 40 and you're going to be banging around, banging around with dudes who are way stronger and more athletic than you, among other things. But the bottom line is that the times in our lives where the risk for failure is the lowest, the potential for growth is the highest, are still the times in our lives where we typically don't really explore this question about what's really authentic and meaningful to us. And by the way, it doesn't have to stay the same during our lives. Um, but most of the research when people like smart goals and the R is supposed to be like realistic or something, I'm like, well, how do we know what's realistic? Right. Well, do you recommend goals? Like, do you at the end of the year with your 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 clients who are doing an end of year review or whatever, looking at next year? Do you talk about goals? Do you do you would you recommend they have goals? Do you like to hear of certain goals over other goals? I mean, I don't have a preference for their for goals over certain goals because again, it's not up for me to decide what's a meaningful pursuit for somebody else. I am always orienting my work toward what is it that you want. And for the vast majority of golfers that I work with, it's I want to shoot better scores. I want to enjoy golf more. I want to win tournaments. I want to keep my card. I want to win majors. And if it's for some people who are higher handicaps, it's like I want to compete in the club championship. I want to see if I can win. Like all these types of things. And again, as long as it's authentic to you and not an obligation, that's what I'm more interested in. But what the goal is and why it's meaningful for you doesn't have anything to do with me. It's all has to do with that person and what's what's authentic to them. Yep. So again, as long as the um, as long as the goal is authentic, it's coming from something that you're looking to pursue or want to pursue versus say again, I deal with a lot of kids versus a, a parent that's I I've got a and it, and it tends to happen. I would say with 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 girls a little bit more more than guys. Typically, if I'm working with a high school high school boy, they all want to play in college. They all want to play in college. That's what they want to do. Yeah. Girls, a lot of times, it's, they'll play in college if it's a good school or it's a means to get to an academic standpoint. Some of them are desperate to play, but most guys are a little more desperate to play. So a lot of times that goal was of playing college golf, as as you mentioned with your your LPJ girl you worked with or the, or the possible, the really good amateur that, that, you know, everyone around her said that she should be playing. So her kind of, the, the goal was thrown on her. Um, so as long as it's a a, a uh, authentic and um, you know the goal is something that you brought on yourself and you want then that's fine and I, I would still say that it, as long too as you can take that goal ball it up throw it down the down the road a little bit and make sure that on a day day-to-day standpoint you are doing what it takes to help you get to that goal tends to have has had a lot of success with you know kind of uh, explaining it that way is i've had a lot of success with my students making sure again they don't get too almost like owned by the goal yeah it's this um it's this again it's a bit of a nuanced thing but what happens is when we can't detach from these goals what happens is we don't see little bits of progress like everything is in relation to this big thing, which again, we want out there as a frame of reference. 
Um, but what is intrinsically motivating to us is we do something and we see we are see ourselves getting better at it. That's crazy motivating for us, right? But when I can't let go of the goal, I start to miss these little pieces of progress that make the thing itself more enjoyable. So like you said, when it's an obligation and I don't really want to be getting better at this or not in this way, it becomes a chore, not a vocation. And if I'm so goal oriented that I can't get off it, I start to miss the little things within it that make it awesome, even when it's really difficult and challenging. And if we're just pairing closer to like the conversation we had in our last episode, it's really hard to learn that way because you're not really focused on the thing you're doing, in which case then if you're always kind of distracted, your effort level is sometimes right where it needs to be, oftentimes too high or too low, and you're not willing to take calculated risks and allow for error and failure, you're essentially setting the table for it to be very difficult to make progress. And then it doesn't become very enjoyable. And now you're talking about the seeds of burnout. And burnout and overtraining are not the same thing. Overtraining is I have worked my brain and my body to the point where they need rest and recovery, and then they can get back to doing what I'm asking them to do. Burnout is I have this conditional relationship with my craft, where if it's not this, it's not enough. If it's not moving in this direction, it's never moving. And it's like, it's very transactional. And I need a return on investment all the time in a very specific and rigid way. And when it doesn't fit that, Surprise, surprise, our dopaminergic system doesn't pair to it. And the thing itself starts to become aversive. And it doesn't take a psychologist very long to figure out that continually engaging with something that is aversive makes you eventually start to really dislike and be threatened by the thing that you actually kind of love. Parents, please, please listen to that. That's so important. Yeah. And there's something about us as parents and adults where we provide young people the opportunity to engage with something with some guardrails, meaning you don't have to do this, but you're going to stick it out through the season, through the summer camp where these natural breaking points might be, but forcing them into things and forcing them to stay in things um, past these kind of natural points where they might learn uh, whether they like something or not, or they're interested in it. it makes the experience pretty t- tough for kids to learn to enjoy something because we're just smothering them with rig- rigidity. Uh, do you remember do you, what was your pipe dream when you were a kid? Yeah. If my body hadn't failed, I probably would have got pretty close to playing professional soccer. You know, I had enough injuries that it eventually my, my body told me that it wasn't going to happen before somebody else actually told me it wasn't going to happen. Although that was always a risk for it. That was the pipe dream. The pipe dream now is to see if I can't um, provide people with accurate and self-directed information, self-directed meaning they can use it on their own rather than me telling them how to do it to see if they can pursue the things that are meaningful for them, whatever it is that they decide that would be. It just so happens that a lot of our people we work with happen to be in golf and that's an area that we're in. Not the only one, but but that one. That's the, that's the larger uh, larger pipe dream at this point. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, I would say mine, mine was uh, funny enough basketball. I wanted to play in the NBA. I realized really, really quickly early on. My dad was a really good basketball player. He was um, he was a really good shooter. I was a good shooter, but like I said, I realized I was not athletic enough really early on in the process that there were a bunch of bunch of people that could do way more things th- than I could jumping and sh- and running and all that stuff. Um, I would say my pipe dream now is to 
is to try to help everybody that I that I come in contact with. And this is why, again, I've, I've been so, so fortunate enough to learn, learn a lot from you about all this stuff, because it's just made my toolbox bigger. And now when, when kids come in and they're, they don't have any mechanical real issues, but they're not performing well, we can go down a, a whole, you know, a whole long list of things to talk about and make sure that, you know, they can access their skill by, by raising up their psychology levels. It's, it's, um, it's been awesome. And so, yeah, I, um, this, this stuff is deep for me sometimes. So I have to, I have to think about it a little bit. I get kind of, I get kind of stuck. Cause I'm like, man, this is this, this episode, especially with goals, you kept saying it's a nuanced thing. And, um, it is, it's difficult because again, if, if we, if we pursue it, if, if we get locked into it too much, again, chokehold, it's, we, we cannot perform to the level that we're, that we're hoping to perform at. And I, I keep telling all my players, your goal every time you go out and play needs to be to be on time, accepting and have a precise game plan. That needs to be the goal. Yeah, yeah but I want to win the tournament. Okay, cool. But to win the tournament, you've got to stay back to process. Yeah. So I always keep bringing it back to process. But this stuff, this stuff's deep. This stuff's good. Yeah. And the thing with process, you know, this is obviously a phrase that has been kicked around, particularly in golf, like process versus outcome orientation. There's nothing wrong with being outcome ori oriented, but by definition, outcomes live only in the past and in the future. They don't live in the present. Because as soon as they happen, they're over. And if they haven't happened yet, they're by definition in the future, right? Process, or what we might just say being invested in the moment that's happening and the effort required within it is happening right now, right? So it gives us the most control. And if we're trying to move toward the things that are meaningful for us, that's where the juice lies instead of getting caught in outcomes that don't technically exist anymore. Of course, we want future outcomes to go the way we want to. But the more we become distracted by them because we can't let go of them emotionally or intentionally, again, the more that they are distracting us and disrupting our performance in a self-imposed and perhaps unnecessary way. But it is, again, a human psychological and emotional need for us to have meaningful pursuits. Otherwise, we're not very happy, not very healthy and not very motivated and not very high functioning people. Like I said, it's a bit of a it can seem like a bit of a razor's edge at times. And one of the cultural narratives that we have, particularly here in America, is that if you don't have a chokehold on your goals, it means you don't care about them. Could not be farther from the truth in terms of what actually plays out beneath the surface. So on the surface, you see people you know, with these intense levels of frustration, anxiety about their future outcomes that they want. And what's happening beneath the surface is it's that chokehold that is causing or at least contributing to that anxiety and frustration that is then disrupting their ability to do the thing or learn of the thing that they're doing while it's actually happening. Good stuff. Guys. That was a I, lot to digest for our listeners this week. Like we said, we're going beneath the surface, y'all. There are, uh, man, Doc, there are plenty of times where I uh, I need to go back and reread the book again and make sure that I'm on, I'm on board with some of this stuff. This was, uh, I... When we talked about doing goal setting, this this one's going to make me think a little bit. I'm going to have to go back and, and listen yeah. to it again. Um, As yeah. a frame of reference in my book, Golf Beneath the Surface, which is as the podcast is named, the very last section of the book, that's probably the last 15 or so pages, I dive into uh, goals and and values and like the difference between the two. So there's a big section that often um, talks a lot about what we were talking about today, which might be... Uh, something to provide some context for the listeners. Well, at 
GBTS podcast at BTS underscore mindset for Doc on Twitter at Chase Cooper Golf for me on Instagram. Doc takes home. Thanks for people uh, for having people enjoy us. I imagine people are going to have some questions after this episode. So when they do, please let us know what they are. We'll clarify anything that made sense or didn't make sense. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll get to some topics that we didn't get to today on the next one, including one that is important to a lot of people, which is perfection. So we will talk. Well, that is also a nuanced topic that we can start to pull apart next episode too. Perfectionism, some self-talk stuff. We'll get into some habits. I'm excited about the habits one coming up soon and we'll have some guests. So stick with us. us. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, guys. We'll see you soon.